So today is a very special day. It's the 11th of Nisan, Yud Aleph Nisan, the Rebbe's birthday. So we'll start off by saying L'chaim. Let's wish each other L'chaim. Let's wish the Rebbe L'chaim. It's the 120th birthday. 120 years is a big deal, right? That's what it says about Moses, about Moshe Rabbeinu. In fact, last night someone told me something very special. You know, the number 120 in the Torah comes up two times. Okay? The number 120 comes up twice. The first time is after... Uh, uh, oh, Marvin got it. Marvin got it. So after the, after the people lived... Good evening. Good evening, Judy. Welcome, welcome online. So the Torah says that, uh, you know, humanity was living for many, many years, hundreds of years, and it became very corrupt. So God became very uh, upset, disappointed with humanity. He said, you know what? We're just going to live 120 years and that's it. So it seems that the number 120 is like, you know, it's, it's a, uh, how do you say, they were demoted. They were demoted from living a thousand years, demoted to 120. Um, and also it, it kind of, it connotes this idea that humanity kind of failed God or it failed itself. Uh, and the fact that it didn't live up to the expectations of living a moral and ethical life. And then the next time the number 120 comes up is at the end of the Torah, after the five books of Moses at the very, very end. So, um, says, I am 120 years old today. And our sages tell us that when Moshe Rabbein, on that day, he accomplished a tremendous amount. To the point where it says that even though he's 120 years old, like Nos Leicho, he, did not, he didn't, didn't lose his vigor, he didn't lose his freshness. He was as fresh as a young man on, on the day that he died, yeah, when he was 120. So, you know, is 120 a bad thing? Is it a demotion? Or is it something that a person should try to attain to and try to achieve this concept of 120? So the answer is like this. Before you learn Taira, before you connect it to the truth of Taira, 120, you know, humanity is not capable of living up to a certain moral and ethical standard. And therefore, the number 120 is actually a demotion. But once you have the five books of Moses, once you have the revelation of the Torah, once you have all of the mitzvot, that you live a life according to Torah, at that point, reaching the, the, the age of 120, when you're going to reach that age and you're going to have a job to do even on that last day of your life, uh, the last day on earth, it's going to be with a vigor, with a freshness, like Meshav Beno had, on the very last day he was on earth. So the concept of 120 in Judaism is that we live a full and meaningful and fresh and vigorous type of life. And that even after the physical life, the impact continues and continues, just like Moshe Rabbeinu's impact hasn't stopped. It still continues until today. And we find it also by the Rebbe. The Rebbe's impact never stopped. And in fact, it only gets stronger and stronger by the day, by the year. So let me just erase this here. Um, okay, so today we are going to be studying a letter like what we've been doing the past few weeks on Tuesdays in preparation. You didn't get one in preparation of it. There's actually I'm not going to pass me a copy. So we've been learning the public letters, pastoral letters that the Rebbe sent to the sons and daughters of our people, Israel, everywhere. The Rebbe would send such a letter before the high holidays and also before Pesach. Starting in 1972, the Rebbe started to send two letters before the holidays. So usually, in other words, originally, starting in 1951, the Rebbe would send out a letter before Pesach, uh, dated on the day of his birthday, the 11th of Nisan, which is only four days before Pesach. 
This year, in 1972, the Rebbe started to send a letter, Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is the first day of Nisan, which is two weeks before Pesach. So that year, in 1972, the letter that the Rebbe, uh, you know, gave out to the people, sent out to all the Jewish people on, the, on his birthday, was actually the second letter for that year. You'll notice the first letter that was Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the Rebbe focused mainly on Pesach and the meaning of Pesach as redemption and our commitment to God. Uh, this letter focuses mainly on the concept of, a, of birth, of birthday, and purpose in life. So you can see that the main, the main concept here is, uh, the main idea is actually the fact that it's the Rebbe's birthday. The Rebbe's talking about how someone should, uh, what someone should learn from a birthday and from the concept of birth itself. But, which, but by the way, this is all connected to Pesach, because Pesach is the birthday of the Jewish people. The prophet Ezekiel says, that this is the day that I gave birth to you. God, that God says this is the day on the, uh, 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 during Pesach, the exodus from Egypt was actually the birth of the Jewish people. Just like a child comes out of its mother's womb, uh, so it's like a person within a person, and that person was taken out, so too we were like a nation within another nation, and God just had to come, didn't have to create a new nation, he just had to pull the nation out from the other nation. So it was the birth of the Jewish people. And just a little bit more context before we go into the actual... Uh, Going, before we go into the actual uh, letter, that year the Rebbe was turning seven. Now, I believe in America, the official age for retirement is 60 or 65. Which one? 65. And you say 67. All right. But according to everyone, by the time you reach 70, you already have to be out of the workforce. So um, that... By that year, by the Febrangian for Yudal of Nissan, for the 11th of Nissan, the Rebbe actually addressed this issue that people are suggesting to him that he should take a bit of a vacation. He should start, take, start taking it easy. No one was suggesting that he should retire from being Rebbe because everyone wants the Rebbe to be Rebbe. <laughs> they came with a lot of benefits. But, um, but uh, we're saying, you know, the Rebbe should kind of, you know, start to cool off a bit and not, uh, not take things so intensely. Uh, should take a vacation. No, the Rebbe didn't, didn't take a vacation even one day. From 1950 until 1994, there was not a day of vacation. Even when he had suffered a heart attack, he spent his time in his office. He didn't go home to recuperate, to recover. He recovered in his office. So he was uh, he was always you know, tuned into what was going on uh, with the chassidim and with the Jewish people around the world, etc. Oh, I, thank you. Okay, that's it. Okay. So the Rebbe addressed that by the Fabrangian, and we'll see that this letter that the Rebbe issued right before the Febrengen, was already an answer to that suggestion, the, 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 the well-meaning suggestion that people had for the Rebbe. All right. So the first page, by the grace of God, 11th of Nisan, 5732. That's 1972, Brooklyn, New York. To the sons and daughters of our people, Israel, everywhere. God bless you all. Greeting and blessing. In these days, on the eve of Pesach, the festival that marks the birth and initiation of our Jewish people, one's mind turns to reflect on the question, what and how should be this nation's way of life in order that it realize in the surest and best possible manner the purpose and goal of its existence? The existential question. Okay, so I'm here. So I'm alive. So we exist as a people. What are we supposed to be doing as people? What's our purpose in being a people, in being a nation? Right? Sometimes people ask that about themselves individually. So I'm here. So I'm alive. 
I'm using up uh, oxygen. I'm eating. I'm drinking. I'm sleeping. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? This is a broad and multifaceted subject, and only one aspect of it will be dwelt upon here. And here is the question. Should this nation strive toward a state of life in which it can enjoy the maximum pleasure with the minimum effort? Or should it prefer a life of toil and maximum achievement, a life of much action and much accomplishment? As there's a lot of there's a lot of elements to this question. What exactly is our mission? Where do we belong? What should we engage with? What is our mandate? There's a lot of things. But here we're asking a very fundamental question. It's more about attitude. Should we try to live an easy and good life? Or should we try to live a hard but a tremendously accomplishing life? And let's put it this way. You have people that live life, they're workaholics, right? Every single day they go to work and they're overachievers. Is that a good thing? So on the one hand, you can say, oh, that's a wonderful thing. Why? They're growing their account. And they're, you know. On the other hand, you could say that's actually a horrible thing. They never have a moment to actually experience life. They're so busy and so, you know, trying to achieve things and trying to move and they can't, can barely breathe. They're not even paying attention to their family. They're not paying attention to their community. They're not paying attention to that which really counts. So the question is, what is life? Is life reaching a point where you could derive maximum pleasure? Or is life, they reach a point that you're constantly toiling and working and trying to achieve more? Fair question. So this is a question with regard to the entire nation. The question is just as pertinent to the individual and his personal life as an individual. Needless to say, this is not an abstract question. For in resolving this question, one way or the other, the foundation is laid for the individual's concern of the pattern of his life. I'm sorry, individual's concept of the pattern of his life and how he will respond to what is happening to him and around him, even in matters not directly relating to him, and certainly in matters which directly affect his life. We have to come with a premise. And based on that premise is going to be the way we make decisions forever. And it's the way we're going to react to many, many things. And here the question is, what is the premise? Do we want to achieve maximum pleasure or maximum toil? Is life meant to be enjoyed or is life meant to be worked? At first glance, let's say a little Chaim before we go further. Chaim Chaim. See, I think I'm going to enjoy life, right? Because we're saying Chaim. At first glance, and on the basis of our faith and our Torah called Teiras Chaim and Teiras Emes, the law of life, the law of truth, by which we are committed to the principle that the creator and master of the world, including the small world, namely man, is the essence of goodness. Right. So our, our faith dictates that God is good. And that it is the nature of the good 
to do good. So if God is good, it would appear reasonable to suppose that the highest perfection is to be found in a state where the maximum pleasure, true pleasure, we're not talking here about steak and, and, and sushi, but true pleasure. Now, let's even say spiritual pleasure. The point should be that the highest that the highest perfection would be found in a, where there's maximum pleasure is obtainable without difficulties and, and without travail. For in such a state, the nature of the good to do good would be perceived in fullest measure. Imagine I wanted to give you a gift, right? And in order for you to get the gift, you have to go and travel a bunch of hours and you have to dig and then finally you got the gift, right? Now, if I was a nice guy, I would hand you the gift, right? You wouldn't have to bother yourself to schlep where, who knows where and start digging to start finding and endanger yourself and all that. And, fi and finally you find the gift. If I'm really, if I'm, a, if I'm a mean guy, I'll give you the gift. I'll make you work hard for the gift, right? But if I'm a good guy, and I want you to feel good about the gift as well. And I want you to enjoy and have maximum pleasure from the gift. Getting it easy is the best way to do it. That's the best goodness. I mean, that's, that's the intuitive way of, of approaching uh, goodness. So in other words, when we say that the nature of good is good, it's not just that he's going to provide goodness. It's also that that goodness should be perceived in its fullest, me fullest measure. We shouldn't kvetch along the way. We shouldn't have what to kvetch about. If you have what to kvetch about, then there's a problem, right? So that's the that's the initial uh, approach to this. So let's continue on the second page. Yet the Torah, which is Torah, -er, showing things in their true essence, declares, "Man is unto travail born. Adam la amol yivoled. A man was created to work." To toil, travail. Amal means not, not only you have to work hard, you're challenged. Man was created to be challenged. Man was created to go through tough experiences. One second. So, so here we have a problem. On the one hand, the, the, the base, the, based on our belief in the fact that God is good and the essence of good and always wants to do good, so apparently we should get everything we need in the easiest way possible. On the other hand, Tara says that man was created to work hard, to toil. Yeah. Um, so this is like a contradiction. So you could say, you could say like this. In fact, the Rebbe spoke about this by the Fabrengan as well. The, kind of, the first four talks by the Fabrengan were based on the theme of this letter. Um, so, so the Rebbe says like this, you know, someone might come and say, I know, I know what the problem is. Originally, when God created us, he would have given us everything on a golden platter. But because Adam sinned, and because we didn't listen to God, so we messed up. So we are fallible. We have a problem. And therefore, for us to receive that good, we're going to have to work hard. In other words, yes, it's true. The Torah says man was created to work hard. But that wasn't the original plan. The original plan was he shouldn't have to work hard. But because we are now imperfect because of our own actions, therefore we have to work hard in order to deserve the goodness. 
In other words, it's not God's problem. It's our problem, right? We just saved God. It's not his problem. It's my problem. Yeah. Sounds like a good answer, but it's not even going to answer. And the Rebbe continues. Even the first man, Adam, before and before his downfall, before he ate from the tree, before he sinned, before he brought all the tzadahs, all the problems to the world, Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden with the assigned task to till it and guard it. He was placed in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, to work there. And only after that did God tell him of all the trees of the garden you may eat. So you're right. When, when Adam was in Gan Eden, he was eating from golden platters. In fact, the Medrash tells us that there were angels roasting meat and handing it to him on golden platters. And he was enjoying it. And he was able to eat from all of the fruits of the, of the garden, right? But that did not come for fruit. He had an obligation, to guard, to, to till it and to guard it, right? To work it and to guard it. Huh? Ah, meat is a Talmud scholar. So that is so the, the, the Torah scholars here are asking a very simple question. Adam was told that he's only able to, that, that he's not allowed to eat meat, right? So how can we say the angels were offering you meat that was roasted on golden platters, etc.? So the answer is I mean, there's there's several answers, but here's here's one of the winning answers. Adam wasn't told he's not allowed to eat meat. He was told he's not allowed to kill in order to eat. It was done for him. It was, it was provided to him. It was provided to him. But he, didn't, he didn't kill the animal to eat. That was the major difference before the flood and after the flood is that after the flood, the, the people were told they're allowed to kill in order to eat. By the way, before the flood, man killed to offer sacrifices. Adam offered a sacrifice. And Cain and Abel, so Cain offered, uh, Abel offered, offered a sacrifice. They were animals. And they slaughtered them. So in other words, when we were not allowed to kill to eat, we were allowed to kill to sacrifice to God. What's the difference? When you kill in order to sacrifice to God, you're not killing for yourself. You're killing as a sacrifice to God. So. When you're killing to eat, so you're killing it for yourself. Oh. Before the flood, they weren't able to. They, they weren't on a level where where that was justified. That humanity should kill animals in order for they did, that they themselves should eat. But if they found a dead cow on the floor, whatever you know, on the side of the road, they're able to. They're able to eat the meat. Not a problem. Anyway, but that's that's a digression. So even the first man, Adam. So we see that this idea, Adam la'omayuvale, that man was man is unto travail born. Man was created. Man was born to work hard, to toil. That's that's the original plan. That's not in order that the imperfect man should be able to receive goodness. Even the perfect man, Adam, before the sin, also had to work. So Adam was in Ganeid, the Garden of Eden. No, apparently he had a mission. There was a mission that had to be accomplished. He was in this world in a reality called the Garden of Eden. And in that Garden of Eden, he had a certain mission that he needed to accomplish. What that is is a separate story. But the point is that he, he, was, he was put there to work. 
So even when he was in the most perfect reality of this world, and he was in his most perfect state, he had just been created by God, he had never sinned, etc. Even then, even at that point, his job, his, his, his description as a person was to work, to be a worker. <laughs> Why are you worried? Why are you worried about Alamaba? I understand. No, why do you have to have a reward in order to toil? God says toil, so you toil. And God told him, You're going into the Garden of Eden of the to work it. Forget about the the you know the, the goodies that come afterwards is a separate story. But here, what do we say? That God created man and he created man to work. Even the perfect man that in his state of perfection seemingly should be able to receive the goodness without working because God is good. Even then, God says, no, he's going to have to work. Which leads us to understand that when we say that God is good, yes, it's true, God is good. But freebies aren't good. Freebies are not good. That, that's essentially where we're going to boil it down to. The explanation of the matter, which also resolves the apparent contradiction indicated above, is also given in the Torah. Precisely because God desires that man should enjoy, here's the key word, so that man should enjoy the good in its perfection. And human nature is such that a person derives true pleasure only if he is a partner in its attainment through his own exertion and travail. I'm sure you've been invited to our barbecue before. And it's good meat. It tastes good. And you say thank you. And you burp, whatever. You know, <laughs> not, not out loud, but you know, it's very nice. You enjoyed it. The guest doesn't enjoy it as much as the guy who barbecued it and prepared it and worked hard to light the barbecue and spent the whole day preparing the barbecue. When they sit down and they take a bite into the steak, Ah, this is this is good. That's true enjoyment. So now, the taste of the steak, the nutrition of the steak, is the same for everybody, right? But the personal experience is vastly different. It's vastly different. That's why when you go to a restaurant, that's why they charge you top dollar. They want you to enjoy the food. So you got to be a partner, not just in the meat. Got to be a partner in the owner's mortgage. You got to be. You pay top dollar, okay? So now you're a partner, right? I'm a partner in this endeavor. Just paid you 150 dollars for a piece of meat, so I'm a partner. I'm an honorary partner now in this uh, in this business. So God wants us to truly enjoy it, and because the nature of man is that they only truly enjoy something that they're a partner in it, that's why we got to. Whereas, on the contrary, if he receives it entirely gratis, what does gratis mean? For free. Say gratis is uh, in all languages, huh? Yeah. If he if he receives it if he receives it entirely gratis, it is degrading to him, as though he was receiving charity. And the term always used for that is bread of shame. The bread is nutritious. The bread keeps you alive, but it's a shameful bread. Precisely because of this, because we have this nature 
that we only truly enjoy things that we work hard with, hard in, in achieving. Therefore, um, the good in its perfection is enjoyed only when a person earns it through hard work. And the harder the effort, the sweeter tastes the fruit of achievement. Okay. Um, so ask the obvious question. What's the obvious question? Who gave us that nature that we should only truly enjoy something that we work hard on? Who, who, who made us who made us like it that way? What do you mean? Right. So, so here, here's my question. So you're saying because we didn't appreciate getting everything and we wanted to work because that's the only way we truly enjoy it. That's why God created the world and made us work. Question is, why couldn't God create us that we should be satisfied with getting? That we should be satisfied with freebies? Why? What's the problem here? What God is the one that created us with all of our all of our nature comes from God. Right? Why not? Why why can't he create us in a way that we should appreciate that? Let him let him create us without this deficit this, this deficiency. <laughs> the fact that when you sit down for a free piece of steak, you only enjoy it more if you actually pay for it. That's a deficiency. It means I'm not capable of enjoying. A piece of steak that was given to me for free. That's a problem, no? Isn't that a deficiency? Isn't that a... a, a that, that's a... How do you say? I have to overcome this issue. Let's not make it that dramatic. Let's just make it a simple question. What are we saying? When we get too fat, are we gonna, we're going to go again? The rule is that this, you know, you just quoted the, the Torah says that you're going to be, uh, how do you say, you're going to have a lot, you can have abundance, and you're going to get fat from it, and then you're going to kick God, yeah? God doesn't say that's only if you got it for free, even if you worked hard. Someone works hard and experiences tremendous success, makes a lot of money, and eats and becomes very fat, you can also kick God. You can also reject God, right? We're not talking here about wealth versus poverty. That's not the conversation. Getting, we're getting somewhere, but here we're, we're trying to deal with an essential question here. Why is it that we don't appreciate something we don't work for? You don't know if it's true? The Talmud says an interesting thing. Talmud says that a person would rather have one barrel of wine. I mean, I'm, it doesn't say wine, but I'm saying... Let's say a barrel. A person would rather have one barrel of wine that they themselves squeezed, that they themselves, you know, did it, than to have ten or nine that his friend gives him for free. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what does that tell us? That this is our nature. Everyone, everyone knows when you work hard about on something, you value it, you cherish it, you appreciate it, you enjoy it, etc. The question here is, why is it like that? 
Why did God create us with this quirk? <clears throat> so let so let him create us in a way that we can value everything in this world, whether we worked for it or we didn't work. If God can create us with one nose and two eyes, and he could create us with two noses and one eye, he could also create us that in our nature we should appreciate and value to the highest, the greatest extent something we didn't work for. <clears throat> so the Rebbe asked this question by the Ben Fabric, and here was the Rebbe's answer. God could have given us that nature, that we will value and cherish everything that we get for free. But you know what's going to happen then? We would be stuck in the category of recipient. Recipient. We would be receivers all our lives. We would always be receivers. When God created the world, so you have these two dynamics. You have creator and creation. Creator is the giver. Creation is the receiver. That's it. That's the way it is. God loves us so much. He wants us to become creators as well. He wants us to become givers. If he would create us with a nature that we could just receive everything and enjoy it and appreciate it and value it, that's great. We would enjoy it. It would be a one-way relationship and we would always remain received. We would always remain creations. We would never have the opportunity to become creators. We would never have the opportunity to become like God. And God wants to give us the ultimate. He, he wants to humor us to the greatest extent. And what is that? He lets us have a kick out of being God. He gives us the opportunity to be God. And that's why he created us in a way that when we just get, only receiving is despicable to us. It's shameful to us. That's it. I'm stuck in the level of receiver. I'm only getting, I'm only getting, I'm only getting. I want to give. I want to achieve. I want to do something. When you eat bread, you're not just receiving. God didn't th throw bread from heaven. You have to, you know, you have to work the land, and you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to plant, and then you have to harvest. And you have to take, and you have to, you have to get the kernels, and you have to make flour, and you have to bake it. There's a whole, a whole situation <clears throat> in order to eat. In other words, we become creators. We get involved. God is allowing us to become His partners in creation. That's the ultimate good. The ultimate good is that we're able to become partners in creation. What's the key here? You got to work. Without work, you never become a partner. So now here's, here's how this all applies to the idea of the Jewish people and us as individuals. This is how it was at the birth of our Jewish nation. The plan of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, liberation from Egypt, was revealed in God's words to Meshe Rabbein. When you will take out the people from Egypt, you all will serve God at this mountain, Sinai. He didn't say, when well, I'm going to take them out of Egypt, you're going to bring them to paradise. No. You're going to bring them out of Egypt, and what are you going to become? Servants to me. You're going to become my slaves. To be sure, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim itself was an act of heavenly grace and in a manner of wonderful and obvious miracles. However, it was conditioned from the start on serving God as a hard-working servant. This was the contribution of the nation, its participation in its newly won liberty from Egyptian bondage. When the Jewish people came out of Egypt, it could have been a one-way street. What's the one-way street? God comes, plucks us out of Egypt, brings us the land of Israel, you're in paradise. That's it. We're just recipients. We're just on the receiving end 
of this tremendous grace from God. But when God said, I'm taking you out in order that you should become my servants, you should serve me with a lot of hard work, oh, now we become partners in this, in this exodus. We become partners in this redemption. As it is with the Jewish nation as a whole, so it is with the individual. A person's striving should be to act and to achieve results, and not merely to act, but to do so with exertion, in terms of travail, as defined by Teiras Emes. I just realized that I did not put the letter in the chat here. I apologize. So if you're still with us and you would like to have it, I'm going to put it up here right now. All right. It should be there in John. Here, it's there. Okay. <clears throat> Only in this way, right? Only when you act and you act with exertion. Only in this way does a man rise from the state of man, Adam, being dust, Adama, to the state of man, Adam, emulating God, Adamela Elyon. Here we go into what I always like to uh, point out. But the Hebrew language is fascinating. And if you understand it well, and you understand how to compare it to other words, you'll find so many beautiful things. What is the title for man? Adam. Where does Adam what does Adam mean? So the, first, the Torah says that it was taken from the earth. Adama. Adama means the earth, the dust. Man was created from dust. So Adam, the word Adam represents man's lowliness. Right? The fact that he comes from the dust of the earth. Four or five hundred years ago, the Shalah said differently. He said Adam also comes from the word Adameh. He is compared, compared to what? To God. Comparable to God. In all of creation, the only creation that could be comparable to God is man. Everything else in this world is stuck in being a creation. Adame means to be compared. Like dimion means like a, how do you say it in English? Dimion is like a, a local, yeah, similarity, right? right? Two people are dome, right? They're they're very compared, so they they're, they're very similar. So adamel elion means to be similar, to be compared to the high, to the highest of high, to the divine. So what's the idea? We have to take Adam. You have to take the earth, you have to take the lowly man and elevate the lowly human beings to becoming comparable to God himself. And how is that? Through hard work. When you invest, when you, you exert your energy, when you toil, so you become a partner with God in creation. Well, okay, so one way of looking at it is that well, one way of looking at it is that when you're doing mitzvahs, then you're being comparable to God, but when you're doing all the other things, you're not. Truth is that God, in other words, we can be godlike in everything that we're doing. Even when you're at work, you're working hard and you're trying to make money, even over there, if you're doing it properly, 
you're doing it in accordance with God's wishes, with the proper intentions and with the proper perspective, you also become a Damel right? Indeed, we're continuing on the bottom of the second page. Indeed, the birth and whole life of a person are constantly attended by miracles. Even when it appears that everything is proceeding in natural course, our sages of blessed memory remind us that a person is unaware of the miracle that happened to him. Sometimes miracles are going on and you have no idea what's happening. This is why we thank God three times a day in our daily prayers for your miracles that are with us every day. How can you say such a thing? I woke up in the morning and I came to Shul and I wasn't almost hit by a car. Like, well, what is it? Well, what's the miracle here exactly? The answer is you have no idea what type of miracles are going on around you all the time. Only God knows. And that's why, as part of our daily prayer, that every single Jew has to say three times a day is to, to really to articulate your miracles that are with us every day. So every part of our life is miraculous. Which part? Um, it's the motive. And the motive. The, the, third, the second to last blessing. Um, so also David, the sweetener of the hymns of Israel, the king of Israel, declares on behalf of every Jew and on behalf of all of Israel. So... Uh, I believe this comes from chapter 71, which was the chapter that Rebbe, you know, Rebbe started to say that year. From my mother's bowels, you took me out. The message this refers also to the delivery of the Jewish people from the power of Egypt. I am a wonder to many. Many miracles you have wrought for me. I will enter into the years of strength. And to this day will I declare your wondrous works in every age, time, and moment. You will revive me. What does it mean you'll revive me? You will take me out of exile. So there's a lot of miracles going on. And we are certain that the miracles are not just happening on a personal level, they're happening on a national level. The entire nation of Israel is constantly surrounded by miracles. And the ultimate destiny of our nation is a miraculous destination, which is the redemption. In conclusion, the entire life of a person from birth and on, as also the entire history of our Jewish nation, thrives on continuous miracles, though these are not always clearly seen, which will culminate in the miracle of the true geula, the true redemption of the individual, as well as of Klaal Yisrael, as of all the Jewish people. And by virtue of our actions and our service throughout the period of, of Golos, of exile, in the daily life of both the individual and Klaal, and of the, of the nation, in compliance with the divine imperative, God told us we're going to have to work on an individual level and also on a national level. The ultimate perfection of the whole world is being realized. In other words, like this. What's the purpose of creation? What's the purpose of exile? What's the purpose of why we're here? To ultimately achieve redemption. Now, the Rebbe points out that redemption is a grace from God, just like it's Yat Mitzrayim. The the, the, the the exodus from Egypt, that was by God's grace. It was, it was a miracle from above. And miracles are happening every day. So we're constantly thriving on miracles, right? We don't generate miracles. These are gifts from God. However, God is inviting us to be his partner. And he says that if you want the redemption to come, I'm going to need you to make it come. You know, let's talk about exodus for, for, for a minute. In the exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt Right before they left Egypt, right before they achieved redemption, they had to work very hard. What did they have to do? 
The Talmud tells us, I mean, our sages tell us there were two bloods that had to be spilled before Pesach. One was the blood of bris bila, of circumcision. When the Jewish people were in Egypt as slaves. They did not circumcise their children. Only the tribe of Levi circumcised their children. The rest of them did not, weren't circumcised. So before the Jewish people slaughtered the, 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 the sheep for the carbon Pesach, for the Paschal lamb, before they were able to eat the Paschal lamb, they had to have a bris. So they all had a bris right before going out of Egypt. If you have a bris when you're an adult, it takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of hard work to go and do it. So the Jewish people exerted themselves to do the bris. In addition, four days before Pesach, they took the sheep and they brought it into their homes. And the Egyptians came and asked them, what are you doing? Why are you taking it into their homes? And what did they answer? We are taking the sheep and we're going to slaughter it as a sacrifice to God. Now Moses, when, when God told Moses that he should tell the Jewish people to do this, you know what Moses told God? We're going to have a real disaster on our hands. The sheep, this is the, the, the Aved Zara, this is the God of the Egyptians. We're going to go and schlep their gods into our homes. We're going to tell the Egyptians we're about to slaughter their gods for our God. There's going to be a pogrom, a riot. They're going to kill us all. What did God tell them? He didn't tell them anything. <laughs> you got a problem, figure it out. But I'm telling you that this is what you have to do. And the Jewish people overcame all their insecurities, their real fear that there's going to be a pogrom as a result. And they went and they took the sheep and they brought them to their homes. And they told Egyptians that this is what we're going to do. The Jewish people had to work very hard before they achieved Exodus. Now, the truth of the matter is Exodus is a great gift from above. But God wanted the Jews to be partners in Exodus. Through doing the bris and through exerting themselves to the point that they had to be brave to tell the Egyptians exactly what was going to happen and not to be intimidated by the Egyptians, it took a tremendous amount of internal work. So they had to work. The same thing is true about the ultimate redemption. God wants to give us redemption, but he wants us to work to achieve it. How do we achieve it? Like Maimonides says, every one, one good deed and one good thought and one good word can bring the redemption. It depends on our work. Let's continue. Let's finish off. The true and complete Geula through our righteous Mashiach, the fulfillment of the prophetic promise, as in the days of your liberation from the land of Mitzrayim, I will show you wonders. Right? That the, that the ultimate redemption when we're going to be redeemed from Mashiach, is going to be very similar to the redemption from Egypt. It's going to be on a much greater level, obviously. But the redemption from Egypt is like the prototype. That's the template for how the ultimate redemption is going to be. It's going to be a tremendous gift from God. At the same time, we are going to have to do our own. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to have to also participate in causing that redemption to happen, not by trying to engineer the redemption to force ourselves out of exile, but by following God's instructions. And God told us the way to bring this world to its perfection is by perfecting yourself through doing all the mitzvahs, through perfecting others by encouraging them to do more mitzvahs, and through making sure that everything that we do is always projecting to the world the, the how do you say, the, the beauty of listening to God, of going in God's ways, learning there and doing mitzvahs. When we do that, we are doing our part. I mean, we have to do it with, with toil. But it's something, I mean, very often it's very hard. And I don't mean that it's hard that you're going to sweat doing so because you have to schlep, because you have to jump over the walls and because, no. Sometimes it's very hard internally. The battles that we go through internally to overcome 
The Yetzirah, the evil inclination that's constantly trying to tone us down from our excitement in Judaism. To overcome the embarrassment and insecurities we may have from other people around us. One of the greatest, um, one of the greatest, one of the biggest reasons why um, people drop Jewish observance is because of peer pressure. They don't want to be different. How could I send my child to a Jewish school if everyone else is sent to this school? How could I keep Shabbos and not go to the game on Saturday if that's where everyone is going to be? How could I not go to the opera on Friday night? Right? That's one of the biggest challenges. And to overcome that and say, no, Friday night I'm not going to the opera. I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to make Kiddush instead. And when my friends ask me, why didn't I come to the opera? I'm not going to sell them a boat that I was under the weather. But I tell them, no, I'm Jewish and I keep Shabbos and I can't come on Friday. That's it. That takes tremendous, tremendous work. But God created us that way so that our commitment and, 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 and the observance of Judaism shouldn't just be a gift come automatic. We should have to participate in that gift of Judaism. We should own the Shabbos, own the Tfil, own the kosher. Not just because we paid top dollar for it, but because we overcame that internal battle that's constantly playing itself out, that is constantly trying to stop us from doing the mitzvahs, from learning more Torah, from investing our time and energy in uh, what God wants us to do. And when we do that, we have done our, we, we've done our contribution to making this world a better place, and we become God's partners. And that is the ultimate goodness. So now everything works out. God is the ultimate good, and he created us so that the only way we would truly appreciate goodness is if we worked hard. Why? Because he wants us to be his partner. Because he wants us to get out of our box of being just a creation that's a receipt. All righty. Uh, and, and you know what happened right after this? The Rebbe spoke about this theme, four talks, and then the Rebbe said a mimer, the Rebbe said a discourse, and then the Rebbe dropped a bombshell on Chabad. He said, I want a gift. What's the gift? We're going to establish 70 new uh, institutions throughout the year. 71, 71 institutions, which then, you know, about in 1972, that was like, what? It was like not even a dream. But they accomplished it, 71 institutions outside of Israel and 71 institutions inside it, in Israel. So this year, in honor of 120 years, in fact, it was this big thing in Chabad, you know, 120 institutions for Chabad today is very little. So the number they came up with was 1,210. Not just 1,200, 1,210. So 1210, so over the past few months, there's, you know, so there's 1210 new institutions in the world. And, you know, it doesn't mean a full, uh, a full Chabad house. The institution could even mean a program, a club, things like that. Um, that that's also considered an institution. Anyway, the main thing is that we should take upon ourselves another mitzvah, in honor of it all, and perhaps even a mitzvah that's a little bit tough. And, uh, and this is going to be uh, the best message, the best gift that we can give the Rebbe in honor of his birthday. Thank you all for joining us on the Chaim. Oh.